Hello and welcome, and we have finally reached the end of our ASCO extravaganza. A long and winding journey from the comfort of the Shire to the summit of Mount Doom. <laughs> I don't know if I'll include that. That doesn't quite That was sense. awesome. Anyway. I loved it. Keep going. <laughs> Today we are ending, as so many great works of fiction do, with a bang, with a climactic confrontation with three of the best and most lauded studies for medical oncology. Josh, why don't you take us away on our final ride, one last ride, with Indigo, the study of voracidinib, that's how you pronounce that word, in gliomas. Thanks, Mikey. I look forward to it. And what a exciting trial. They When they discussed this trial, they gave the results in the second slide. That's how excited they were, and I am too. So it was a phase three randomized double-blinded study looking at boracidinib versus placebo in patients with residual or recurrent grade two gliomas with an IDH1 forward slash two mutation. The results, they were interim results, but they were unblinded because they were just so good, had a progression-free survival of a, with a hazard ratio of 0.39. And of course, it's a placebo group, but it's glioma. So there's only two, two or three treatment options and none of them are stupendously effective either. And it's low-grade gliomas as well. So placebo is probably a very accurate control. Right. And the inclusion criteria... World Health Organization grade 2 IDH1 slash 2 mutant diffuse glioma not in need of immediate chemo or radiotherapy. So if this patient needed immediate chemo or radio, you know they were symptomatic or things weren't heading in the right direction. What's the background? So mutations with IDH are present in most low-grade gliomas in adults and they occur early in their disease status. The mean age of getting a glioma of this grade is 40, so they're young. It grows aggressively in the later years, but it grows pretty slowly in the early years. Usually, first-line treatment is maximal resection, then post-op PCV or temozolomide with radiotherapy for grade 3 and grade 4 tumors. Not curative, not even in the grade 2 tumors. And most patients choose to defer treatment and get serial MRI scans of the head. So what is IDH? isocitrate dehydrogenase. It's a mutation that occurs in various cancers, including glioma. It results in overproduction of a 2-HG, which is R2-hydroxyglutarate, then inhibits lots of enzymes, including and causes enzymatic dysregulation, impaired cellular differentiation, immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment. So voracidinib is an oral inhibitor of this mutation. It's got great brain penetration and early trials showed safety and some efficacy in this cohort. The early trials showed that it could potentially reduce the 2-HG, which is that overproduction sort of enzyme, by 90% in resected grade 2 and grade 3 non-enhancing diffuse gliomas. So the trial design had to be over the age of 12, IDH mutated grade 2, oligodendroglioma or astrocytomia, prior surgery, non-enhancing disease, measurable disease, and not needing immediate treatment. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and secondary endpoint was time to next intervention, which is another way of saying subsequent cancer therapy. So the three analyses they looked at, one was after 55 progression events, two was after 120 
three progression events, which ended up being the final analysis because they got there and they found the results. So randomization, 168 patients in the varicitinib arm, 163 in the placebo, 21% discontinued in the intervention arm, and 41% in the control arm due to disease progression, essentially confirmed. But they were allowed crossover, I believe. Now, follow-up of 14 months in the intervention and 14.3 months in the placebo. Let's head to that primary endpoint again. Median progression-free survival is 27.7 months, not reached in the intervention arm and 11.1 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of 0.39 and was exceptionally statistically significant. And then time to next intervention, voracitinib was not reached again and 17.8 months in placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.26. One of the best numbers we've had on this show again. The probability of not receiving a subsequent anti-cancer therapy at 24 months was 83.4% in the voracitinib arm versus 27% in the placebo arm. So there was a 50% increased chance you would stay on the one drug rather than switching to something else because it's not working. It was favorable in all the sub-analysis arms, which is great. And grade three or higher adverse events was 38% in the voracitinib and 22% in the placebo Commonest was increased in ALT in 96.6% of the voracitinib and was all reversible. There were no fatal outcomes. So as a summary, it's a positive trial in the primary brain space. I'm speechless. That's how, how excited I am about this because it's actually a trial that might work and might have applicability elsewhere as well. And I look forward to bigger studies and using this in different spaces and in combination with things like chemotherapy or something else. And I really hope it kind of starts that train like melanoma was 20 years ago. Maybe this is the start of intracranial primary brain lesions having their time to shine. A targeted mutation, a targeted treatment for a primary CNS cancer. The word groundbreaking or paradigm shifting is frequently uh, overused in modern parlance, but this is something that really has the potential to to herald a new era of anti-cancer treatments. So I'm right there with you, Josh. This definitely takes the gold in my mind for ASCO. I agree. It's gold. It is best for last, right? Best for last. Well, Gold for indigo, and I think that means that silver has to go to our next study, which is the final overall survival analysis of Adora. Now, we've talked about Adora, I think, even more than once on this show, but I will give people a bit of a refresher. Adora is a study of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer using adjuvant osimertinib in patients with stage 1b to 3a disease. The background is that lung is a leading cause of cancer death worldwide, with more than 2 million cases diagnosed annually. The vast majority of these are non-small cell lung cancer, and unfortunately only 30% of new diagnoses have resectable disease. So catching it early is rare, but these are the patients that if you can catch it early, you really need to optimise treatment. Depending on where you look, the prevalence of EGFR mutations ranges from 10 to 50%. Hiring people of Asian background, non-smokers, young, female. That is the that is the stereotype of an EGFR mutant 
a non-small cell lung cancer patient. The current standard of care for non-small cell lung cancer with or without mutations is surgery followed by adjuvant treatment, and anyone will tell you this is suboptimal at best. The rates of recurrence after R0 resections and adjuvant chemotherapy are unacceptably high. In terms of five-year overall survival, stage 1b has a five-year overall survival of 75%. So even in very small tumors, a quarter of patients are recurring and dying within five years. Stage 2a patients have a five-year survival up to 70%, but once you get to stage three, it plummets. So 45% of patients at most are alive at five years after diagnosis. Adjuvant osimertinib with Adora is a bit of a trailblazer. It's the first EGFR TKI to show significant overall survival benefit in a phase three adjuvant study. Kind of giving away the game there, but hey, you knew it was coming. It does highlight the importance of testing, not just for EGFR, but for your ALKs, for your ROS1s, for your METs, for your CMETs. All of these drivers that are really becoming a focus of lung cancer treatment, it is important to test for them early. In terms of the trial background, again, only summarizing this as a refresher, but patients with stage 1b to stage 3a non-small cell lung cancer that has been completely resected were enrolled. They were allowed to have standard adjuvant chemotherapy, but this was not mandatory. Inclusion criteria had to be older than 18 years, so not quite the 12 years that uh, Indigo had, Josh, have the exon 19 deletion or L858R mutations, so not including those middle children, the exon 20 deletions that we talked about in a previous episode. If patients did not have adjuvant chemotherapy, they had to start osimertinib within 10 weeks of surgery. If they did, it had to be within 26 weeks of surgery. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive oral osimertinib 80 milligrams daily or matching placebo. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival in patients with stage 2 and 3A disease, The secondary endpoint was the DFS in the overall population, so the primary endpoint plus those with 1B disease, the landmark DFS rate, overall survival, safety, and health-related quality of life. We've already got quite a bit of data that's been published the first way back in 2020. The primary disease-free survival rate had this phenomenal hazard ratio, which I'm not sure has yet been beaten, Josh, of 0.2 in favour of osimertinib. Data presented at ASCO was the updated and final analysis of the primary DFS as well as overall survival. So the primary DFS had a hazard ratio of 0.27. In terms of raw numbers, that's that means 65.8 months in the osimertinib group versus 28 months in the placebo group. So almost a threefold increase. So we know that osimertinib is a very good drug in terms of disease-free survival, but let's get down to the thing that everybody cares about, which is overall survival in patients with stage 2 to stage 3a disease. And the hazard ratio here was 0.49, with a p-value of 0.0004, so very statistically significant. The five-year overall survival in the osimertinib group was 85% versus 73% with placebo. There was a sustained separation of the curves, And the median overall survival, interestingly, was not reached in both arms, but we can already see a benefit. In terms of the overall survival in the intention to treat population, so sticking those patients with with stage 1b disease back in, the hazard ratio didn't shift. It was still 0.49 with a p-value of less than 
0.0001. At five years, the overall survival in the osimertinibab remained the same, 85%, versus 78% in the placebo. And again, the median overall survival was not reached. In terms of a forest plot, oh Josh, we love a good forest plot on this show, don't we? The benefit of osimertinib was sustained broadly throughout all predefined end groups. However, it did cross the line of equivalence in a couple of notable cases. Patients who had stage 1b or stage 2 disease, as well as patients with L858R mutations. Now, the stage 1b and the stage 2 disease, it's understandable you are coming from a slightly better baseline, so the degree of benefit with osimertinib is naturally potentially going to be less. It is interesting, though, that exon 19 deletions did so much better with a hazard ratio of 0.35 compared to the L858R mutation with a hazard ratio of 0.68 and again, crossing the line of equivalence. So that is interesting. I wonder if the L858R subtype has a higher tendency for resistance mutations or some other biological reason, but it is something to note. In terms of overall survival divided by disease stage, the hazard ratio for the stage 1B disease was 0.44. Patients with stage 2 had a hazard ratio of 0.63, and the gold medal Here goes for patients with stage 3A disease with a hazard ratio of 0.37. Again, probably not surprising. Osimertinib is a good drug. Stage 3A disease is a very bad disease, so you're going to have a greater degree of benefit. In terms of subsequent treatments, 22% of patients in the osimertinib arm and 54% of patients in the placebo arm receive subsequent treatment. EGFR-TKIs were by far the most common subsequent anti-cancer treatment received across both arms, and it would be interesting to see the efficacy of an EGFR-TKI re-challenge in patients receiving osimertinib, but obviously we don't have that data yet. In terms of adverse events, when you're comparing against placebo, any intervention is going to be is going to have a higher rate of toxicity. However, it wasn't that much numerically. So 23% of patients in the osimertinib arm had a grade three had greater than grade three toxicities against 14% in the placebo arm. There were no new safety signals with osimertinib and there were no treatment related deaths in either arm. So in conclusion for our silver medalist for ASCO, there is now an established significant overall survival and progression-free survival benefit of osimertinib in the adjuvant setting. However, the authors are not resting on their laurels. They're going to continue to follow up there's going to be further analyses of minimal of patients with minimal disease, tumor biology, and trying to further narrow down patients who benefit most. There are also multiple other trials in this space. So the NeoAdora, so neoadjuvant OSI with or without chemotherapy in resectable EGFR mutant stage two or stage two to three B disease. The Adora two study which is adjuvant osimertinib versus placebo in stage 1a disease. Lots more research is going to happen in this area. We've mentioned in a previous episode about the combination between chemo plus TKI, a really fantastic and a very fitting conclusion to, I think, still the record holder for our best hazard ratio on oncology for the inquisitive mind. And may it be beaten sooner rather than later. That's very true. What a compelling story you told with the update of Adora, Mikey. To finish off ASCO and our final plenary trial, I will talk about PROSPECT, which is adding to the confusing world of rectal cancer. So PROSPECT was 
preoperative chemotherapy with selective chemoradiation versus chemoradiation for locally advanced rectal cancer. Why do we care? Most intermediate risk rectal cancer patients can receive curative intent treatment without the need for pelvic radiation. There are over 400,000 locally advanced rectal cancer cases at diagnosis. That's half of the patients diagnosed with rectal cancer. Pelvic chemoradiotherapy with 5-FU or capecitabine reduces local pelvic recurrence, but there's a high morbid outcome. And neoadjuvant pelvic chemoradiotherapy has been the standard of care for two plus decades. And the advances since that time has included Folfox in 2002, surgical techniques, total mesenteric excision, and screening, but screening only picks up less than 4% of tumors. So what was the schema? Tell us the trial, Josh. There was, it was neoadjuvant treatment, randomized one-to-one with standard of care, which was pelvic chemoradiotherapy for 5.5 weeks, followed by surgery, followed by adjuvant chemo, which is either Folfox or Capox at clinician discretion. Or they were given Folfox for six cycles, restaging, at this restaging point, they were given chemoradiotherapy if the Folfox was not tolerated or poor response. They defined poor response of less than 20% reduction in the rectal tumor size. So if it was greater than 20%, you went with surgery. And if it was less than 20% reduction, you went with pelvic chemoradiotherapy followed by surgery. Mikey, does that kind of make sense how they kind of stratified control and the intervention arm? Perfect sense, Josh, as usual. First time for everything. The inclusion criteria had to have at least T2 disease and node positive or node negative disease. Chemoradiation had to be indicated and excluded if they needed an APR, abdominal peritoneal resection, T4 disease, or greater than foil pelvic lymph nodes, so the really high risk area. So the primary endpoint was disease free survival, and secondary endpoint was local recurrence, overall survival, R0 resection rate, and toxicity and quality of life. This was a non-inferiority design. So if the hazard ratio did not exceed 1.29, so if it was greater than 1.29, it would be considered inferior treatment. If it was less than that, it would be less than one, it'd be considered superior. And if it was in that in-between, it'd be considered equal. Remember, we want toxicity to be less and same outcomes in this trial. So 585 patients were in the Folfox arm, 543 in the standard chemoradiotherapy arm, and greater than 60% had pelvic positive lymph nodes. So the disease-free survival, 80% in the Folfox arm versus 78.6% in the chemoradiotherapy arm with a hazard ratio of 0.92, but a confidence interval up to 1.1. One four, meaning this was a non-inferior criteria was met and so it's equal to standard of care therapy. The median follow-up was 58 months. So freedom from local recurrence was 98.2% in the Folfox arm and 98.4% in the chem... 98.4% in the chemo radiotherapy arm with a hazard ratio of 1.18 and a confidence interval up to 3.16 with a median follow-up of 58 months. So the overall survival, 89.5% in Folfox and 90.2% in the chemoradiotherapy arm with a hazard ratio of 1.04. Again, not statistically 
different, meaning that it was equivocal and surgical and pathological endpoints. You got a complete pathological response in 22% of the Folfox and 24% in the chemoradiotherapy arm and R0 resection in 99 and 97% of the chemo of arms respectively. Post-op therapy, so 82% had Folfox in the intervention arm and 83% in the control arm and use of pelvic radiotherapy in patients randomized to Folfox. So 9% of patients randomized received neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, either because their restaging showed poor response or they were unable to tolerate Folfox. So not that many. Toxicity-wise, neoadjuvant phase, it was 41% in the intervention arm versus 23% in the control arm, which was chemoradiotherapy. Noted more diarrhea in the radiotherapy and more neutropenia in the Folfox. And in the adjuvant arm, 25% in the Folfox and 39% in the control. So it switched. So essentially the neoadjuvant stage the chemotherapy was far more toxic. And in the adjuvant stage, the chemoradiotherapy of the intervention arm was more toxic. Patient reported toxicities were more in the Folfox arm. And this is another pivotal fact, Michael. 12-month toxicity follow-up was low in both groups, but higher levels of neuropathy in the chemoradiotherapy group at 8% and more oxaliplatin was given postoperatively. So quality of life, favored Folfox, but not statistically, and bowel function was better in the Folfox arm, and sexual function was also better in the Folfox arm. Yes, there are limitations, including exclusion of high-risk disease like T4 and multiple enlarged nose, and not all patients had MRIs. Rectal cancer and treatment has definitely shifted, so there's now shorter courses of adjuvant Folfox that can be given. There's shorter courses of radiotherapy, and there's total new adjuvant therapy, which wasn't a thing and non-operative management. I guess what we need moving forward is we need the next generation of trials to really define what this answer is. So yes, we know it is non-inferior. And I think that's important to say that some people might prefer having chemotherapy first with potentially reduced treatment later, although they all have the same amount of chemotherapy. But radiotherapy does have its toxicities. We're not bashing radiotherapy. It's definitely a pivotal point, as Michael mentioned earlier, but it's just something to really think about. That is the whirlwind of a classic rectal cancer trial, which is always a little bit confusing and always a bit difficult to describe over a podcast. But the summaries, toxicities were similar, outcomes were non-inferior. So you could probably choose either one within that cohort. But things have changed. So maybe it's not even as applicable as it was, let's say, five or seven years ago. A very noble effort to, as you say, summarize a typical rectal study that is very confusing and if anything just muddies the waters so prospect gets our bronze medal in this plenary special josh we've done it we have gotten to the end of asco how are you feeling it was a whirlwind recording every night and researching and doing all that stuff with a newborn is definitely something i would not recommend but having doing the edits with a little baby on your lap is somewhat endearing so it's not the not the worst thing and i learned a lot and i loved talking about these trials and i can't wait for next year where mikey and i head to asco and head to esmo with a little bit more free time absolutely so thank you once again so much for following us and joining us on this whirlwind tour of ASCO. We are going to have some time off, so we will be back probably in about a month's time as Josh learns what it is to be a dad and I learn what it is to have my evenings back. Thank you once again. We will be back next time with our previously promised 
first fan requested episode on ductal carcinoma in situ but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him so we'll see you in a month can't wait and don't forget to like and subscribe for all the great future content that we're going to be bringing out oh there's never gonna end we're gonna be here for a long time the beauty of oncology thank you for listening to oncology for the inquisitive mind you'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts resources and links to our twitter and linkedin pages check it out at inquisitiveonk.com that's inquisitiveonk.com